Uh, Father God, what an amazing journey this has been, and just rediscovery. And I pray that as we come to the conclusion of this particular series, that we are commissioned, inspired, encouraged, exhorted to really take all of this into deep consideration for how we live, how we raise our children, how we interact in our relationships, for how we do intimacy with one another, for how we engage in business and in life and in technology, for what we think about economics and geopolitics, because we know and confess to you that the way of Jesus is not just a personal, internal, spiritual thing. It is something that transformed the entire world and how people lived. So help us to engage at that level, to be transformed once again so that this world around us can be transformed by your kingdom coming and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. I pray this in your name. Amen. For those of you who are just joining us, we've been in a several week series entitled So, which I like to entitle So. It's kind of like that inquiry, that little twinge of like, what are you really talking about? What is it that you really believe? And over the course of the last several weeks, we've had several of their spark pastors and teachers present some thoughts and ideas, some suggestions regarding what ultimately are fundamental Christian ideas and Christian beliefs. For example, why are we here? Well, one of the ways in which we can think about that particular question, why are we here, is that every single one of us is actually created out of the dust. We are created out of the dirt, out of the dust of the earth, out of the ground itself. The word Adam comes from the word Adama, which means we are groundlings, we are earthlings, because we come out of the earth. But that's not just why we are here. We're here because we have been created in God's image and his likeness. And just like he put us in the garden to care for it, to serve it, to work it. So we have been commissioned to care for and to serve this beautiful world in which we live. And to then make disciples, which is to help others see that they are also brothers and sisters, just like we are. And we have been commissioned in that image and that likeness to care for, to serve, to work this beautiful creation. So why are we here? You are all created in the image and the likeness of God. You are all commissioned, therefore, to be that representative. Everywhere you go, wherever you see chaos, you get to be light. Whenever you see dysfunction, you get to see purpose. You get to be purpose and order in that location. But there's another question that comes along with it. We don't always see that. So what really is wrong with the world? We talked about this being the word sin, except rather than the condemnatory tone and pointy finger sin that often comes in religious circles. We talked about sin simply being a distortion of how we see things and a missing of the mark. We're aiming for beauty. We're aiming for justice. We're aiming for equality. We're aiming for having the right shalom and peace in this world, but we miss it. That's what sin is, to miss that. And part of understanding that is that if that is what is sinful, then the opposite of that is to help put everything back together the way it was supposed to be, the way it was originally designed to be. We went on to discuss the question, at least in Christian circles, then why did Jesus have to die? Well, fundamentally, he didn't have to. This particular world is still sinful. And part of the lesson that we talked about there is that this world has unfortunately perpetuated this kind of injustice all throughout its history. Go back as far as you can, and you find civilizations and empires and people committing mass atrocities and injustices upon the peoples. And ultimately, we still have yet to overcome the ultimate piece of the puzzle, which is 
death and the grave. But Jesus coming in to die for those things is to exemplify and to show to each and every one of us this is what is really going on, to have an awakening moment. He didn't have to die. We have the power to fix those systems of injustice. We have the prerogative. We have the image and likeness of God within every single one of us to do away with all those systems of oppression and injustice. In other words, Jesus' death on the cross, as Paul talks about in the book of Colossians, in the letter to the Colossians, exposes every single one of those horrible, unjust, unjust systems. And then what did Jesus' death actually mean? It means, then, therefore, death and grave doesn't win. It doesn't have the final answer. Life can be restored. And the entirety of the world that has been broken apart can actually come back together. A full and complete reconciliation found in that death. And what I loved about what Omer mentioned is the death isn't as important or isn't as central as the resurrection that comes on the other end. What does it mean to be saved? Pastor Marcus shared that there is a very real, tangible, right here, right now definition and understanding of salvation. It pulled in or placed in a box of purely spiritual terms, salvation sometimes just simply means at this particular moment I know that I'm going to heaven rather than going to hell when I die. But in this definition of salvation, which means victory over, something actually can happen. We have victory over impending doom and destruction. And then as you participate in a variety of ways to engage with salvation, you realize that your life is actually being saved by the participation in those activities. And because this world is the way it is, we are commissioned, therefore, to not just think of salvation as a moment, but to think of salvation as this thing that you continue to work out. What does justice look like here in my life? Well, I, I, okay, I'm starting to figure that out. But as you move on, as your perspective gets bigger, as you recognize more of the world, you realize, I need to continue to work out what justice and salvation means in this realm, in this area. And you're continually working it out. We're still kind of uh, distracted with the question of what happens when we die. Two different particular locations. Really wise people, apparently with beards, are really important. But we talked about how that ultimately isn't the final say about what happens when we die. Because what is really most important is that the images and the pictures that we have about what happens after we die are actually images and pictures of what happens here. There's supposed to be metaphors and symbols to teach us about the death and the hell that is all around us. And our story, the Christian story, is not a pointy finger condemnatory, you're going there if you don't. This story, as Omer pointed out in Ezekiel, is you have to keep reading the chapters. Sure, there's hellfire and brimstone, but then there's a God who pursues you, draws you back, rescues you from that hell. And as is found in the book of Revelation, it is actually death and Hades itself that is thrown into the lake of fire. Death itself is going to be destroyed. So we don't have to worry about where we're going to end up because God is ultimately taking care of that. And for those of us who think that we're going to be caught up in the clouds in the sky and we're going to have beautiful birds and beautiful scenery and <clears throat> wonderful music and all the things that we like, including appliances, as we mentioned, as we think about getting out of this place so that we can finally get to there, 
And when we get there, it'll be all about me. Sometimes in this definition, there is no even mention or recognition of God. What we discussed, that what happens when we die is ultimately not the continuation of there being separate from here, but of bringing there to here. So rather than us going up there, the entire endeavor is that there is actually coming down here. Established God's kingdom right here on earth as it is in heaven. So the more and more we work to serve, to give grace, to extend compassion, rescue and justice and love in this world, the more and more we do that, the more and more we are realizing the beauty of that heaven that we think and we see and we imagine, we get to realize it right here and right now. And then last week, in the summary, all of what we just talked about comes from our book, from our story. But rather than being an owner's manual, it is actually telling the long story. Ups and downs and twists and turns and successes and failures of all the people throughout our tradition. Speaking in the language of the ancients, speaking to very real times and very real places, expressing how this beautiful creation, this beautiful salvation, this beautiful faith actually works its way out in the midst of all of this chaos. And we get to carry it around in this book or in our you know, digital devices. And that book, what we call the Bible, is inspired in that particular way. That our, our, our ancestors decided to take how they pursued God in the midst of that chaos and tragedy and said, this is so important. I want to pass this down to future generations. So that has been a little bit of the journey that we've been on. And as we mentioned before, it's not everything. It's just a quick snapshot. It's hoping to get all of us to be catalyzed, kick-started, a little swift kick in the rear to say, well, what really is it that we believe? For those of us especially who have grown up in the church, who never take the time to actually stop and interrogate our beliefs, part of this series was to hopefully move us towards stepping back once again, revisiting and asking some deeper questions. So today, in summary, I'd like to ask the question, so what? So, so what if all of these things happen to be true? So what if we happen to believe these things? So what does that actually matter? And I'd like to couch my response in three main categories. I've mentioned this before in previous messages, so this might be familiar to some of you. I've come to the conviction in my life and in my work that every single one of us need a story by which we live. We need a community with whom we belong, and we need a purpose, a meaningful purpose to which we contribute. We all need a story. And by the way, we're all living by one. The question is, what kind of story are you living by? We all need to belong. We are tribal beings. Our evolutionary history tells us that we need connection with each other, and something happens to us when we connect with one another. And the entire story and the journey of our spiritual faith is all about we, not about me. And then we need a meaningful purpose, something that we are striving for and giving to, that my life can actually be expended and given towards something that is meaningful and purposeful. And even though that feels draining and exhausting, it is the most life-giving thing that you can ever do. A couple caveats, just a reminder that our journey was not about answers. Our journey was not about giving you a formula for what Christianity actually is and how Christianity explains everything because, well, honestly, it doesn't. This is a picture, one of my favorite pictures, 
of what is known as the microwave cosmic radiation background. And I might have had those words mixed up for those of you who are much more attuned with this. The cosmic microwave radiation background. Basically, it's the fingerprints of the Big Bang. Somewhere in this 13.75 billion year old universe, we're somewhere in there. And part of our understanding of our faith is to recognize the confines of what these beliefs actually mean and how they actually live out. They, they're for meaning and purpose and story and direction and values and community. But the problem is we recognize that there are still more questions that we get to ask. Part of the journey of discovering God's beautiful creation is to take a look at the, all of this all the way out to 13.75 billion years, all the way down to quarks and neutrons and neutrinos and string theory, if you believe in that, and everything in between. There's a lot more in there. So we recognize that our beliefs aren't an explanation of everything, and that's what's so beautiful about making sure that we understand what really is it that Christianity teaches. There are some things that fundamentally the Jesus movement doesn't address at all, even though it would still be informative for our guidance and our direction. We recognize that there's mystery. Houston Smith wrote this incredible book, The Soul of Christianity, many, many years ago. And in it, he has several things, but in it he writes this one phrase, that the Christian world is actually infinite. And he writes, God is a circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. And if you were to ask me what that means, I have no clue. But the reason why I love this quote and what he did in this particular book is he was trying to do damage to the absolutism that has arisen in some Christian circles that says, we know exactly what God is. We know exactly how it works. And now we just shelve it out to everybody. And if you do not conform to how we see things, then you must be on the outside or a heretic or maybe even questioning your Christianity. I remember when I was starting to question some of my own beliefs and going through my own period and journey of, of deconstruction, people were saying, are you a Christian anymore? And I ran into Houston Smith's work, or this beautiful thing, this God who created this entire universe, this singularity of one thing just splays into a beautiful, diverse series of expressions whose center is everywhere. Everywhere, meaning in physics, in psychology, in biology, in church, in worship, in children, in adults. God's center is everywhere. Circumference is nowhere. So I find that to be really beautiful. So our journey was not about absolutism. There's still a lot more to discover, a lot more questions to ask, a lot more pursuits. But here's what is true. Our journey was about the way of Jesus. We have been unapologetic and clear about we are committed to who this person was how he taught, and the radical transformation that the world had as a result. And I'm going to share some quotes at the end of this to share with you some historians and sociologists and how they see the early Christian movement. There's, a, in secular philosophical circles, there's always this idea um, that the ultimate ethic and the ultimate aim, the ultimate moral is human flourishing. Human flourishing, human progress, human advancement. And I'm going to contend that there was a movement of Jesus 2,000 years ago, stems into the history and the tradition of the Abrahamic faith that actually did produce one of the most astounding, sociologically amazing evidences of human flourishing and progress and advancement. And that's part of the reason why we went so far back, and we will continue to go back as far as Genesis to ask some serious questions. 
Um, one of my favorite analogies regarding this particular expression of faith is a swing. How many of you like, still like to swing today? This is my little one's favorite activity. Yes, she does want me to push her hard enough so she will make one full 360. She's gotten there already. At the particular point where she's old enough to swing by herself, which she's getting to, of course, she's going to have to learn two motions. At one particular side of the swing, she is going to have to lean forward and kick back. And then at the other side of the swing, she's going to have to lean back and she's going to have to kick forward. There are these two movements that are opposite one another in order for the swing to actually happen. For us, our kicking back and our pushing back is study, history, questions, wanting to always remain rooted in our story. Let us never forget, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God spoke. Let us never forget that story. Always revisit, go back, restudy, rediscover. How did the ancients understand this? But we also have to recognize that our world today is not the world that it was. Our cosmology is different. Our technology is different. Our philosophies are different. Our cultures are different. And so there's this movement forward that we also have to consider. What kind of progress have we made? What kind of culture do we actually live in? What kind of evolution has happened in our species? These are things that we have to take into consideration. And part of the reason for that particular journey is because that is, in essence, in my mind, what we're doing. We are constantly doing two opposite simultaneous motions. As we continue to move forward into autonomous vehicles, into the world where that is happening, and then, of course, analytics, artificial intelligence, medical advancements, longevity, lifespan increasing, all sorts of crazy stuff is going on right now. As that continues to happen, part of the reason why we still hold to a Christian faith and an understanding of who Jesus is is because we're never going to let go of our past either. That those stories that informed the foundations from which these civilizations emerge, those are things that are really, really critical and important to us to understand what does human flourishing and human advancement actually mean. This is right in line with the Jesus movement. Then, beginning with Moses, by the way, this is right after Jesus has risen from the dead and he's having a, a walk and a conversation with people who do not recognize him. Finally, they come to some sort of awareness. It's a famous story on the road to Emmaus. And he says this, Luke records, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. We see in the Jesus movement, and this, you could go to Matthew chapter 1 at the very beginning of the New Testament, all the way through to Revelation 22, and you're going to see reference to reference to reference to reference to reference over and over and over again to the story that they inherited. So we're constantly going to go back, and that provides us the story. That provides us the narrative. That provides us the framework. Don't forget about David and Gideon and Deborah and Moses and Aaron. Don't forget about these characters, Yael and Huldah the prophetess. These are amazing people and amazing stories, and we don't ever want to let go of those. And that's what provides this framework for what we do, which is why we did an interrogation of our beliefs and where did they come from. The Sodom and Gomorrah story that Omer shared is a, let's revisit that. Oh, I never noticed that before. Keep reading this story. Oh, that was new to me, or I never was awakened to that before. So our journey was about the way of Jesus and remembering that story. Our journey was also about furthering the way of Jesus. There is 
Another reason why we do series like this and teachings like this and the reason why we love that you gather together and we, we still share is because the tradition that we are a part of is a tradition that our ancient ancestors recognized needed to be passed down to the next generation over and over and over again. That the work was not just complete. The work was actually incomplete. And that's what was beautiful. There's a theory in philosophy called game theory. One of them, one side of this is called a zero-sum game and the other side is called an infinite game. Some of you might be familiar with this. A zero-sum game is like most of the sports we play. There's a winner and there's a loser. And once the time is up, the winner wins and the loser loses. But then there are other games that are called infinite games. And those are the games that you don't play to win. You play to keep playing, to keep figuring out how does this new strategy in this new way work its way out here. Playing in an infinite game is not about conquering and is not about concluding it's about seeing how far that game can actually go. And part of what we're doing in this day and age, as we look back to what those Christian beliefs are, is we're asking the question, how far can this game actually go? Can this movement of Jesus actually still advance into this world in which we are emerging? Luke, at the very beginning of his gospel, does this. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I've received something. I, too, decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus, Greek name, inherited a Hebrew story, now passing on to a Greek individual. By the way, the word Theophilus means God-lover. Some theologians have suggested that the name is actually symbolic of people who are in love with God or people who love God. So that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. We did our so series to interrogate and ask some questions about the Christian beliefs because we want to pass these on. This is part of the reason why the addition of Emma, our intergenerational ethic, we recognize that this story needs to be kept being told and then being sent on to new people new emerging generations, all the young juvenile delinquents in our midst. <laughs> just, I'm just kidding. And that's what formulates our community and our connection, as Hebrews talks about. And then our journey was about living the way of Jesus, to actually do this thing, to actually interrogate our beliefs so we can actually live better, believe better so we can live better, so we can be more true to this movement and we can have the very, very best, the highest potential, the greatest outcomes of what this faith actually means in this world. Several passages come to mind when I think of this. Matthew 4, 19, Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee, sees Peter and John, James. He said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fish for people. Matthew 11, come to me, all of you who are weary, and heavy, carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. There's an invitation to all of you to actually do this thing. A yoke in Hebrew thought, in Jewish thought, is the interpretation of the rabbi. A yoke is the way to live this out. So when he says, come to me, for those of you who are heavy, like, like there's just a weight on your shoulders. Come take my interpretation. And it will free you to live in a way that you've never thought possible. Life is actually possible. John 20, 
at the very end of the gospel. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing in him, and here's the key phrase, which is found all throughout the gospel of John, that you may have life in his name. You can have life. Not just living, not just routine, not just having to get up in the morning and turn off the snooze alarm and go through all the things just to stay alive. These were written down so that you can be alive and to live. And this gets us to our purpose. Something that drains you, that you can pour all of your time, energy, effort, and it just consumes everything a part of you and you give it to this thing And it is the best thing that's ever happened to you because it gives you so much meaning and purpose, that which you contribute. The movement of Jesus, the reason why we interrogate and inquire about all these beliefs is because, as I would sum up for you, my suggestion to you is that this movement of Jesus provides us with the most phenomenal story, the best story that we could ever live by, a community that is not just close but that is long and historical, and gives us the greatest purpose that man could ever have in his entire life. As one theologian so brilliantly put it, you can't kick it with Jesus and not be transformed. (laughs) It's brilliant. Rodney Stark is a historian and a sociologist. He's written some brilliant books. Here are a couple excerpts. We're going to try to bring it home. Because what I'm suggesting to you is what I've been thinking about mulling over, proposing in my own brain. Does this movement of Jesus have any weight, relevance, purpose, traction in this world in which we're living? Is it possible that this world actually needs the the movement of Jesus, the way of Jesus? And so, again, swing back, going back to the history. Here are some quotes from Rodney Stark regarding why did this Christian movement even begin in the first place? That's a great question. In fact, Larry Hurtado has a book entitled Why Did Anybody Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? It's about 170 pages long. 165 of those pages are all the reasons why people shouldn't become Christians. And he spends the last couple of pages explaining the radical transformation. And the reason why I love that is because the first 165 pages are like, yeah, there is no reason why anybody should ever become a Christian all the forces that were against people converting to this movement doesn't make any sense, but here's why. So that's Larry Hurtado's book. Rodney Stark sums it up in this way. Christianity offered a much more satisfactory account of why these terrible times had fallen upon humanity, and here's the key thing. It projected a hopeful, even enthusiastic portrait of the future. It did something to those early followers. This tragedy, this chaos, I cannot believe these people, and in those days, these religious leaders and politicians, these governmental authorities, we can't believe that they're acting this way. And look how we're suffering as a result of it. Christianity gave a sufficient account for why that is happening, having to do with fallenness and sin and missing the mark and not seeing people as co-equal images and likenesses of God. And then... Christianity projected a hopeful and enthusiastic portrait of the future. If we can together come, together as a family, brothers and sisters, and work for justice and compassion and mercy and the beauty, beautiful work of protecting this world, there's a beautiful heaven that is to come. 
in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, in responding to the traditional way in which people think about, quote, pie in the sky, which is a euphemism in our culture for meaning the heaven and the gloriousness that is to come, the pie in the sky. I love what he says here. Christianity often puts the pie on the table. <laughs> so great. It makes life better here and now. Not merely in psychological ways as faith in an attractive afterlife can do, but in terms of concrete worldly benefits. This movement of Jesus at the very beginning stages benefited people for who they were, how they saw themselves, how they worked, lived economically, politically, socially. Now, some are going to object to that uh, some will object that to stress the importance of tangible worldly benefits for Christian conversion is to wrongly downplay the religious motivations for the rise of Christianity. This objection overlooks that these worldly benefits were religious in the fullest sense. They were centered in these beliefs. They were centered in the core tenets, the core convictions of the Jesus movement. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. How you treat your neighbor is how you treat your Savior. And the two are one and the same. And that radically transformed how people treated one another. It was by imitation of Christ that Christians were able to live longer and enjoy more comfortable lives. What in the world? You want to know why this movement took off in the way it did and informed and influenced Western civilization in the way it did? Here's some pretty good responses to that question. It wasn't just pie in the sky, it was pie on the table. Something that everybody could join in, participate, and have their lives radically transformed. So here's my audacious claim. The reason will, this is the so what in my message. That which gave life then can still give life today. That's my audacious claim. If we can continue to Ask the questions about what these early Christians believed, how they lived it out. What were their core convictions? How did they see people of different races, different colors, different ethnicities? How did they understand gender equality? What did they think of power and politics? How did they understand intimacy and sex and relationships? What did they think about economics and money and poor and capitalism or whatever? And if we can begin to interrogate some of that stuff and ask some deep questions about all that as we did over this series, my audacious claim is that pulling in lessons and understandings of how it transformed their lives then, it could still give life today. That's my audacious claim to us, my friends. Our journey through this series was an invitation to this way for all of us, wherever you are. I don't care if you believe in God or don't believe in God. I don't care if you go to church or don't go to church. The entire series is an invitation. Would you consider that there's a way of doing this life, there's a way of living out these values and ethics that is still transformative today? The challenge, of course, is going to come is that you're going to sleep in tomorrow. You're going to hit the snooze button. You're going to go back to the routine of life and work. But I'm going to ask this question. As you get up in the morning, go to work, go to school, participate in your everyday life, just like these early Christians. I would ask you the question and imagine what would it be like if we lived in a world in which work was infused with the story of God? 
What kind of world would this be if we thought about education and children and generations as passing on this beautiful story in discipleship? What kind of international relationships would we have? What kind of geopolitics would we have if we actually practice loving your neighbor? Um, What kind of relationships would we have if we sacrificed ourselves for one another? What kind of justice system would we have if we saw race and ethnicity just like Paul and Jesus saw them? If we understood that every single person is equal in the eyes of God and created in the image, and if I see somebody who looks different from me, acts different from me, all I'm doing is seeing a greater, more expansive, more capacious view of who God is in this world. What would happen to our justice systems if the way of Jesus was actually practiced there? What would happen to our economic systems if we recognize that poverty is not the will of God? That there are so many passages regarding taking care of the poor and the widow and, and not charging interest and don't hold it over your brother. All these things. What would happen if we actually lived this way? This is my audacious claim and inquiry. And ultimately, it's an invitation, as I mentioned before, that all of this about what Christianity is and what the Jesus movement is and what it stands for and what it could be, my friends, I'm inviting you, I believe God is inviting us to consider deeply that this could, just like then, radically change people's lives. It could change our lives here today, too. When all the craziness in the world and Facebook and news reports and brokenness and dysfunction, when all that seems to hit the fan, we are invited into another story, a community, and a purpose that is designed to redeem it all and infuse it with whole new life. Right here, right now. Not for later, right here, right now. So, what about you? That would be the invitation question. Wherever you are in this journey, I'm going to encourage you, challenge you, exhort you, however you want to put it. Consider deeply, my friends. Consider this story. Consider this movement. Consider the way of Jesus. And if we could get up tomorrow morning with an infusion of that way in our lives... My imagination goes wild as to what kind of world this could actually be built. For those of you who are still considering what kind of career path you want to take, for all of you youngins in the room, I get so excited that you're here amongst us. I really do. I'm very, very serious. Because as you're at Stanford and Santa Clara and Foothill and doing all the things that you're doing and pursuing your careers, it is my hope that some of what we've talked about, some of the culture that we have attempted to create in this particular church around the way of Jesus inspires you to see your career path in a whole new light. Not just in trying to accomplish what the world suggests that you're supposed to accomplish, which is to make your way up whatever corporate ladder or to make however much money so you can live in certain places, but to now infuse your life with this particular story. And if you become DAs, if you can become judges, if you can become police officers, or if you even become politicians, that you could radically change the way our world works by living out this story. I really believe that. I mean, I wouldn't spend my time here doing this if I didn't believe that. I really do. And so that's the invitation, to consider carefully 
What did these Christians actually believe, and can we actually still believe those things today, and does it actually make a difference? And my audacious claim is, it does. It actually does. I mean, all you have to do is turn on the TV or the news or open Facebook and see that people are not living the way of Jesus. That's all you have to do. And then to ask the question, what if they actually did? What would that look like, and how would that change your world? That's my invitation to you, my friends. That's the so what. Thank you for being a part of our series. We appreciate it. And I hope it inspires you in some particular way. Okay, God, do with us what you will. Thank you for this amazing community. Thank you for this amazing church, for the hearts and the souls and the minds that are in here that have inspired me and challenged me to consider this as well. As we get up tomorrow morning, God, I pray that you would bring to our minds carefully, considerately, what would this way look like today in my life, in my workings, as I'm in the car, as I'm in the shower, as I'm interacting with business partners or friends, family members. Help us to remember that. And I pray in your name.